All right, everyone, welcome to Making the Argument. I am your host, Nick Freitas, and we have a special episode for you today. If you've been watching a while back, one of our one of our most popular episodes is when all of us were sitting around the table and we were doing an analysis of this video called The Coming Right Wing Backlash by Rudyard Lynch. And he hosts a channel called What If Alt Hist along with a podcast called Common Ground. But What If Alt Hist was something where I just I stumbled across this. It showed up in my YouTube feed one day. And the next thing I know, like four hours later, I was like, oh, crap, I need to get to work. <laughs> like, you know, I had just gone down the rabbit hole of watching this incredibly interesting channel that talked about history, that talked about politics, culture, anthropology, and all of the videos I felt were really unique and very easy to listen to, very informative. In, in fact, when I'm looking at YouTube, there's kind of three categories I put all the videos into. There's my information videos, and I'm watching these just strictly for educational purposes. And then there's the entertainment, right? These are when I'm watching all the, the cold opens from The Office or something like that, right? I'm getting a lot of entertainment, but not a lot of information value. And then there's those ones where you just have this, this beautiful intersection of informative and entertaining. And I am telling you, what if Alt-Hist just nails it? And so we're really excited to have the, the creator, researcher, host of What If Alt-Hist with us today, Rudyard Lynch. Rudyard, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Nick is too kind. <laughs> well, some, some people would say that, others not so much. But <laughs> Well, the first thing I want to do is, you know, I, I think there's, I really think the audience that we have on Making the Argument uh, would, would love your channel. But I, I'd like to give them just kind of a little bit of background on you. So can you just take a few minutes and, and tell us about, you, you've been doing this for like nine years now, is that correct? Um, I'm 22 years old right now, and I started this, on my 13th birthday, so nine, 10 years. And I started it largely out of boredom. And I was into a thing uh, called alternate history, which is uh, what if the Nazis won the Civil War? What if the South won World War II? And wait, all um, the way around? <laughs> in that whole vein, no, I'm purposely saying it to mess oh, with Oh, really? People. Okay. I, I did it by accident a couple of times. So, <laughs> and now I do it on purpose to mess with people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so you look at, try to figure out. What If you changed blank variable, how would the course of history look different? And I started as a hobby, and so I did that for uh, six years, and I got stuck at home during COVID, and I wasn't at school at the time. So I tried to turn the – I worked really hard on the channel when I was stuck at home. And then when I went to college, it took off, and I switched from doing alternate history to the content I currently make, which is – trying to look at the patterns in human nature and history to figure out how the world works and also what the future might look like. And, um, and so that took off when I was in college. I dropped out of school after a semester. Um, and then I lived as a digital nomad. I'm based out of Texas now. Um, but this has become my full-time job for the last three years. And I'm really thankful because before it took off, I didn't think being a YouTube public intellectual was a job. It just wasn't in my frame of reference. And it, I'm just, I'm, I'm grateful that it panned out. Well, I want to, I want to take, again, I want to take our audience through some of the, the videos that you've had. And, and I think the one that first popped up in my feed, which is, is one of your very popular videos, several million views. And that's uh, what would world war three be like? And I, I, again, what I appreciate about the work that you do here is, like you said, there, there's a lot of people that would do alternate history. And I remember reading, I think it was, was a Harry Turtle Dove, um, 
was kind of famous for writing some of the yeah. alternative history books and whatnot. And, and they were, they were interesting, but it was always something like somebody comes forward with a time machine and gives the South AK 47s or something like that. Whereas your version is not so much about, you know, anything very sensational. It's about looking at history through the lens of there, there's multiple things that could have happened. They, they could have had a, a reasonable level of probability that, that had this taken place at this time or, or had this person not been there, this could have been what, what took place. And what I found valuable about it is that it wasn't just entertaining as, oh, that's kind of neat to think about. It was, no, it, it, it's showing, as, as you described, the variables that were involved. So as I look at some of your, your popular videos that you did like that, what would World War III be like? Um, you know, who will win America's next civil war? What, what, are the, some of, what, what is the thought process that you go through to not just kind of like throw crap at the wall and say, oh, this might be interesting to consider, but like what, what's the thought process you go through in order to really determine wh what are the probabilities here so that you, you can conduct effective predictive analysis by reviewing the past? That's actually a really good question. I don't get asked it that often, but I've thought about it, where one of my friends, um, he runs a think tank, and he, he was very and, – and he wanted to figure out how I thought, and he came to the conclusion that my worldview was built upon the invention of strategy video games, and that's a really interesting concept because I, I'm Gen Z. I'm the youngest you could be where you could have – easy, high-quality strategy video games from birth. And um, I was obsessed with them as a kid. I'd play like three hours of Age of Empires or Civilization or whatever. And what I would do is that I would replay the same scenarios and pull out different variables to see what changes. So I'd play uh, the Great Northern War and Empire Total War, do an attack a different country, attack Prussia rather than Russia. I'd... Um, mod and change civilization so that you would have a certain faction would own a certain city and not another city. And I think that is a worldview that naturally lends itself to alternate history. And I don't, I haven't done alternate history for three years, but I think it really did set up how I viewed the world or how I view the world because my analysis I think is through simulation where I imagine to myself, if blank were to be the case, what would the world look like? And I'll throw out the controversial example if you were to have a social death cult, how would it look any different from wokeness? Yeah. Um, if you were to have a large, um, a large Eurasian empire, how would it look different from Russia today? And so I, I create images in my head. If blank conditions were to be true, what would the scenario look like? And that is the underlying basis of how I view the world. And I think that I took that from alternate history and applied it to the actual physical world. And I view it similar to how loads of authors start writing fan fiction. Loads of people who become big fantasy writers start writing fan fiction of Lord of the Rings or J.R. Tolkien or Lord of the Rings or uh, George R. R. Martin or that sort of thing. And then after the fan fiction, they progress to the real work. And that's kind of what I did where I um, – I started out with basically doing historical fan fiction, and then I progressed to a level where I was dealing with the actual subject matter. So, out of curiosity on that, when when I was when I was still working, um, kind of in the military and on the contracting side, and doing in some in intelligence analysis work, one of the things that we used to always say is that computers are really good at scaling, but people are better at figuring out 
relationships, right? It, it's, it's difficult to teach a computer, especially yeah. at that time to kind of pick up on social cues or, or, um, different motivations, but they could scale. And so the, the strategy that was used, especially when people were developing analytical software was how do we, how do we take the advantages that the human being brings to the table and then allow them to scale in a way that their, that their own mind never could. Like, how do we get, uh, and, and the way I used to describe it to people was if I have a, if I have a good tool, maybe I get to, maybe I get to take under consideration three or four factors, but if I have a great tool, great analytical yes. tool, now I can take into account a hundred factors and, and it's going to create. So it, as you're looking at this, what, what are the various, cause you talked about some of like the strategy games and things like that. What, what are the various tools that you use, whether it be, you know, uh, any, everything from books or research to analytical tools or games, like what are the things that you use to, to get, um, kind of as many variables as you can under consideration. And, and do you have like a threshold where you're like, okay, this is a point where I feel confident about this particular, this potential outcome or conclusion. These are great questions. Uh, these, these are things I think about no podcast before has asked me about. Um, but what you said is the cognitive bug of modernity where we think if a computer model says something, it'll happen. And the reality is that's never the case. And we see this with social engineering where you think, okay, if we've had 20% growth due to putting these inputs in, if we put double the inputs, we'll have 40% growth. Well, the reality is that's not how the world works. And people aren't chess pieces. They're real living human beings where if you, the, the world system is alive. And so a nation is alive, a culture is alive. And so if you try to manipulate it like a machine, it won't work because there's all these feedback loops built into the system. And so our problem in our society is we treat the world as if it's a computer, but the reality is it's not. Um, and that's something I think with AI, and that's a philosophic problem we'll hit with AI when we try to apply it to the real world, in my opinion. But for the tools I use is I try to be very careful about what I don't know, because there's a only by knowing what you don't know can you create a barrier for what you're confident about. And you see this with science, where scientists think, I'm going to build this experiment. I'm going to make very clear terms of what I can and can't figure out with this experiment. And because of that, um, I can have confidence in my results. And one of my catchphrases is I'm betting against God. And what that means is there's an infinite amount of ways to be wrong and only a handful to be right. And so I don't pretend to have the all-knowing answer. I, 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 I'm just trying my best. I will probably fail because it's statistically impossible that I succeed all the time. And that's part of the, that's part of the game. But I mean, I know that there is a Dunning's-Kruger for history because I passed it where if you've read 10 books on a subject versus 100 books, the person with 100 books, their comprehension of the most elementary things, the person who read 10 books assumes is just completely different. Where if you're really into history, you know that if you're um, passively in history, you'll think the European Middle Ages was a dark age. If you're really in history, you know that the European Middle Ages was the most advanced society up to its point. And there are loads of things where once you get very deep into a topic, the things that you just assumed without thinking when you were getting into it, you no longer know. And so I'm confident that I don't know a lot of things. And that's why I don't talk about science, where for loads of scientific topics, I just know I haven't hit that threshold where, my where I'm capable of knowing the things that I don't know. And 
you asked a lot of great questions. So I'm going to try to go through each of them, but it'll take a second. Um, oh, please. With the tools you think about, I try to use that strategic computer macro model, but also I also I try to empathize with people. And this is something that I very rarely see in political science, where we don't view countries or people as actual human beings with emotion. And I view a society as an emotional thing where, uh, I mean, for example, I think the reason the Taliban in the, in the Islamic world went against the West was that they felt their pride had been slighted by colonialism. And it doesn't matter whether or not it's true. What matters historically is they felt that way. And I try to apply empathy and emotion across all of human societies. And I've developed a theory or it's a theory that other people developed that I crystallized into a new form, that human societies are driven by emotion. So uh, Christian societies are guilt-driven, Asian ones are shame-driven, tribal ones are fear-driven, we're anxiety-driven. And so I try to figure out what is the emotional state of a population and what will it react to. And that really does change your perspective. But I also just... I try to factor in chaos because I don't know. And I'm, I'm finishing a video today about will we have, will Israel escalate into a world war? And the short answer is I have no clue. I can't say, I don't, I think the chances are beneath half because the chances that any one event does escalate to a war are pretty low. But once you add up 10 events that could have a war, it, you end up with the war where world, there were about 10 events that could have started world war one it just happened to be in Bosnia. And um, I try to be, I try to not sell people on things that I can't do. No, no, that makes a lot of sense. It, it was funny. We did a, um, I was looking at some of your videos and I realized that there were certain topics that we had kind of hit roughly around the same time, like uh, China and Taiwan. And um, I remember one of the points yeah. that, that I was trying to make is my, you know, my background in, in special operations was that a lot of times people have this tendency where they'll even when they are trying to diligently research something they'll they'll go on and they'll try to do like maybe an an order of battle comparison between China and Taiwan and and if you look at it from the number of tanks or the number of fighter jets or the number of you know available infantry or number of reserves you look at these things and, and it's like, oh, my gosh, China would just obliterate Taiwan. And then it's like, okay, but once you get past the Excel spreadsheet and, and you look about everything that goes into trying to pull off a successful amphibious invasion across 100 miles of open water through only two months out of the year when you have favorable you know, winds and weather conditions, this, this becomes a very different proposition. Um, is there a – is there a and I, I know you said you use some of the, um, some of the tools – if you're like, let's say you're going to tackle a situation like China and Taiwan, and, and which you've done and, and done very well, um, when, when you're looking at something like that, uh, without without you know giving away trade secrets, right? Like, what, what do you what, what what's your thought process when you say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna start here with kind of understanding things culturally, and and I and I have to say, when when you describe that, it re, it kind of reminds me of this story that we get told in Virginia a lot about a, a young a young man writing to Thomas Jefferson wanting to be an attorney, and Jefferson gave him like a six hour a day reading list, and it started off with agriculture and economics and political science before he ever got to a law book. And, and when the student asked him, he said, "Well, until you understand." like all of these other things, you're not properly understanding why we have laws in the first place. 
because it, it's all created in order to yeah. affect certain things. So as you're looking at something like Taiwan versus China or, you know, World War Three, which is what are some of what is what are the processes and the tools that you use specifically like to, to, to build that out? Like what are the considerations and then maybe the, some of the your go to sources or tools? I look at the underlying context because that determines why people do things. And motivation is incredibly important to figure out in politics because through motivation, you figure out what someone's fears and what their hopes are. And through that, you can figure out their underlying situation. So one of the big variables that I don't see a lot of other people talk about with Taiwan is that China is attacking Taiwan since they themselves are in a very precarious position. Chinese youth unemployment is at 51% now. They, their youngest age bracket is people in their turning 40. And their housing market is ridiculously overpriced, where um, the norm is that you will work over 20 years in China to buy a four-sided concrete shack without electricity. And so they have all these serious social issues, and they're turning themselves into what really amounts to as a Maoist state. And if you look at the things the Chinese say, it's, it's, um, they literally say things like you should eat bitterness, which translates to Chinese life's going to be hard and you should suck it up. And that's, and it's difficult for me to translate how brutal that is in Chinese, but they, they're trying to, or they'll, they literally put out propaganda saying, you should like we need to fight a war against the Americans. The Americans are our enemies, and because of that, you can see that the Chinese are in a precarious position. And I think China. I, don't, I forget what I said in my analysis like uh, two years ago or something or a year and a half ago, but I think China would lose an invasion of Taiwan even if the Americans were involved, because I look at the functioning of the rest of their society, where there are no cultures in my comprehension, where the civil service and the rest of the government is not a proxy for the effectiveness of the military. No, I mean, where China is, they've been trying to stockpile agriculture for COVID. Whenever they do large amounts of coordination, it always falls to corruption and local parochialism. And I can't imagine their military would be any different where it would be like Russia and Ukraine, where Russia underperformed our expectations. And I think China would do the same, where they might attack Taiwan, and then it would backfire, and it wouldn't work. And this is a set precedent for Chinese invasions for centuries. The And the Chinese invasion of Mongolia, uh, Korea, Burma, Vietnam, over the last 500 years, in each case, the Chinese massed a massive army, sent it at their opponents, didn't supply them, didn't train them. They thought the, the giant numbers would uh, do their own work. And then because they never had a serious military planning or training or whatever, their army just got butchered by a much smaller local population. And I, I'd imagine that would probably happen to Taiwan. And the point that you say is also really apt that it's exceptionally difficult to pull off an amphibious invasion. And even more so against a mountainous jungle island like Taiwan. And it's embarrassing where Taiwan is the size of Ireland, China is the size of America. Imagine if there was an, imagine if Ireland was off the coast of South Carolina and the U.S. failed to conquer it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think you bring up a really interesting point too, is that there, there are times, there's also a mistake I think people make when they're analyzing conflict 
where they will look at it from um, a purely military you know, analysis. And they'll say, this doesn't, this doesn't add up without taking into consideration that, well, it, it might not need to militarily in order to spark something off. It might just need to politically or culturally. And, and to your point, when you have 30 million yes. more men than women, um, you, you have a young man problem within your population. You have, you have a, young, a young unmarried, um, you know, sexually frustrated young man pop, uh, problem within your country, which can be catastrophic because they're going to probably fight somebody. And if you don't want it to be you, you better give them a different target. I was going to say my right-hand man, Merrick, says foreign policy is often not dictated by what you want. It's by what you don't want. And countries often make decisions based upon um, based upon what they feel cannot happen rather than what they want to occur. And if we have a world war, it won't be because any country wants to have a world war. It will be a series of rational decisions added up across different countries about them not wanting something to happen. And when you add up all those rational decisions, you get an outcome that no one wanted. No, I, I think that's a, a really excellent point. Um, I, I know one of the things that, that we've talked about on, on our channel when we were discussing uh, what would be what would cause a breakdown within the United States where we actually had something rising to the level of national divorce? And one of the things we talked about is conditions and catalysts that if, if you have the conditions, but you don't have a catalyst, you, you might not necessarily have something significant take place all at once. If you have a, a catalyst, but not the appropriate conditions, you know, it peters out very quickly and, and, you know, maybe no big deal or nothing of, of any sort of like significant historical relevance. But when you do have the right conditions with the right catalyst, that's when all of a sudden, uh, you know, Christian Hines, my, my co-host, he likes to say that, uh, I think it was Bismarck that predicted, he goes, I can't tell you when there's going to be a world war, but I'll tell you what will kick it off. It'll be some stupid thing in the Balkans or some foolish thing in the Balkans. And, and lo and behold, he was correct. Um, so it, as, you, as you apply the methodologies that you use and the tools that you use to um, analyze and potentially predict you know, let's just say highly probable courses of action, right? This is all inductive reasoning, right? Um, as you look at the United States, one of the things that, you know, fascinated us so much about your video, the coming right-wing backlash, and, and Christian was the first one to, to see it in our crew, and he immediately sent it out to our Slack channels, like, you guys got to watch this. And, and it ended up being one of the episodes. And one of the things that we found fascinating was the multiple variables you, you took into consideration, um, the, the probability of different alliances that might form, why they might f form, why they would be successful, not successful. Um, what, I, what I'd like to talk about is as, as you look at potential conditions, like with what's going on in the country right now, and, and you know, kind of predicting out, um, there, there's a particular uh, model that, that – you, you discuss in many of your videos, I, forgive me, I can't remember, a particular model which predicts... Um, it's, uh, it's the Turchin model, and it predicts when societies have revolutions or civil wars based off three variables. Good Ranchers is there to make sure that you have the best protein you can possibly get from a great American company supporting great American ranchers, right? That's right. And right now they have a deal all through January. All right. You go on and you go to goodranchers.com. You use promo code Nick. You sign up for one of the subscriptions and guess what you're going to get? You're going to get an order of chicken with every 
single delivery for the first year of that subscription. That's like that's like a hundred and eighty something dollar value, right? For free, you just get it because of two things. One, they want to make sure that you have all the protein you need to be big, strong, and to be able to fight for the things that you believe. Plus. They just want to prove, they want to prove once and for all that when you allow good ranchers out there doing their job, right? Doing, doing their job, not a bunch of government interference, not a bunch of, you know, government, you know, pulling the strings everywhere. Just let people do what they're good at. They produce a superior product, which can win in the marketplaces. Goodranchers.com, promo code Nick, sign up for one of the subscriptions. You're going to get like a year a free chicken added to every single order. I mean, you cannot beat that. Goodranchers.com. Again, if you're looking for a way to support the show, a great way to do it is go to goodranchers.com. Use a promo code Nick. Support yourself. Get good quality American-raised beef, pork, poultry, and wild-caught seafood. And again, we thank them for sponsoring the show. And the creator was able to retroactively apply it to over 20 historical crises by plugging in these variables. And it ended up creating civil wars or crises to the years they took place in. And those three variables are income inequality, amount of people competing for good jobs, and average wages. If you can combine those three variables into a single metric, you get a society's political instability. And the reason for that is that, and I just want to throw out, this is not a causer for all wars. This is a cause for civil wars, internal conflicts, because, for example, the world wars are the exact opposite, where the world wars were caused because every country in the world was so energetic and so powerful that they were butting heads with each other. What we're looking at is the opposite, where societies are not functional, and so they can't keep themselves unified. Because what happens when you have extremely high competition for the top positions and high inequality, people are barely getting by, is you remove any incentive towards cooperation. And because once most people have nothing, and most people are struggling in modern America, I think half of Americans can't afford a $400 emergency cost. And um, and once you have that, alongside competition for a couple positions, people realize that working inside the system will help them. And because of that, they try to support their own faction. And this might break along a bunch of different lines, the Reds and the Whites in the Russian Civil War, the Optimates and Populares in the Roman Republic, the um, Armagnacs and Burgundians in medieval France, but for us, it's the uh, right and the left. And for each of these, they belie underlying issues. And for America today, it's the college-educated versus uncollege-educated, where almost every policy the left pushes benefits people with college degrees, and for the right, it's people who don't base their positions off college degrees. Um and I don't think it's a coincidence that I'm a college dropout and I'm politically on the right. But um, but that's what the underlying – that because, for example, the re, a big reason the left supports immigration is that immigrants mainly compete with working class Americans. And if you're a part of the college-educated class, they provide you services more cheaply at the expense of non-college-educated people. Or to fund the police is the attempt to replace – non-college-educated police officers with college-educated social workers. Um, and that's the model that the guy invented, and in, he made this model in 2010, and he said that in the 2020s, America would have a s civil war or revolution. And it's been really sad to watch that if we were to be going toward the civil war revolution, I don't know how the, how the time since would have looked any different. Yeah. 
Well, it, it's interesting as, as we were as we were looking at it. Um, and, and again, this is this is a bunch of of you know laymen with with certain backgrounds and certain insights, um, but not necessarily you know subject matter experts. It's not as if I've created my own model to predict these things. But some some of the conditions that we were looking at within the United States is that we said like, okay, if you um, if you if you have sizable components of the of the population which have diametrically opposed views both with respect to the past and the direction we want to go in the future that's problematic um and then we said okay and and then if you if if combined with that one of those sides or both of those sides were convinced that they had a a moral obligation to compel the other side uh, to to go along with whatever their vision was, that would be problematic. And then the the third condition was, and then if one of them actually amassed the amount of power, and for the the purposes of argument, we said at the federal level, um, to where they could actually impose it, right? So it, it's one thing when California wants to do something, and people it, it it's it's problematic, it's upsetting, but they can move, right? They can they can go to Idaho, they can go to Tennessee, whatever. Yeah. What happens when you can't escape? The, the country, right? The policy is coming after you no matter where you go in the country. We're like, okay, th- those conditions would, would, you know, potentially create an, an environment. And then what sort of catalyst would be necessary? Like what, what actually goes from, um, you know, again, wh- where do you, where do you go from? I'm really mad about this to I, I'm in open rebellion to the point where I'm willing to assume a significant amount of risk. Like we're, we're way past, I'm going to be deplatformed. And now it's no, like I'm fighting in the streets. And, and that was a little bit harder for us yeah. to, to pinpoint like a uh, Christian, my co-host said, he goes, it's gotta be a sovereign debt crisis. It's gotta be something where, you know, the federal government can pass whatever they want, but if you can't pay the troops, you, you ain't, you ain't getting it done. And we, we talked about, well, what would happen if they st- stacked the Supreme Court in such a way to where they said, okay, there's no more individual right to, you know, gun ownership and we're going to take the additional step of proactively going out and trying to confiscate them. And you have certain states that say, you know, again, the you know, the the ATF shows up and the Texas Rangers meet him at the border and and gosh, what happens now, right? It's it's that that um, you know, shot yeah. around the world sort of moment. And as as you look at various conditions and and catalysts, um what do you, what do you, and I, not to put you on the spot, but I know you've, I know you've thought about this a lot. What do you think are, are various conditions that would need to be met or potential catalysts that would take place? And one of the things I'm, I'm interested in here is the work that you've done on, um, describing and understanding what motivates the left and the right. And, and I know there's, there's concepts of, you know, being motivated by disgust, for instance, is, is a different motivation that it yeah. impacts people differently based off of their worldview. So I, I know I just threw a lot at you right there, but as you look at conditions within the United States, as you look at the models that you've studied, what are some conditions or catalysts that you think could actually drive Americans way beyond the point of just yelling at each other on Twitter? It's my job to know the answers. Um, no, no stress out putting me on the spot. But um, <laughs> what I would, everything you said is true, and those are all good points. I don't know if we talked about this before, but human divorces are like political divorces, and the number one cause of divorce between spouses is money issues, and that's the case on the national level too. Where if you look at these historical crises and the crises I talked about before with that computer model. They occur every 200 years, with the last example being the French Revolution. Before that, the 1600s Wars of Religion, 
um, the Black Death, the Crusades, the fall of the Roman Republic, the number one cause is debt issues or budget issues. And that's a really easy option today because, I mean, we keep on passing budgets every 45 days and each time the budget only barely passes. But as I said before, if you keep on adding up 20% chances that things blow up and you get six of those, that adds up to being a 120% chance. Yeah. Or you, you hit the 100%. Uh, that's not how statistics work, but you're, you're getting higher and higher chances sure. that, um, that it happens. And so debt is the number one thing or us not being able to have a budget. Um, besides that, I mean, if you think of want to view this in terms of divorces, outsized black swan or events you can't predict that are massive that benefit one side or another. Imagine you're a couple, the wife's mother gets seriously ill and the family will have to give a tremendous amount of money to support her medical bills. The estranged husband doesn't like the wife's mother anyway. So he uses this as an excuse to divorce and international wars are like this where we've seen it break down where, um, Ukraine, became a scene as a left-wing war. Um, Israel is in a place where it's... Um, Israel is in a place where both sides are not really clear. Like, you have people on both the right and the left who are for and against Israel. But if you have a major political event outside the country that unilaterally benefits one... that fits into one side's vision of the world and not the other, that could also cause it. The other thing is the election, where we have an election coming up in a year where... The last two elections, both sides have disputed the results. And say what you want about 2016 or 2020, I do not trust the results for 2024 because (laughs) you end up in a situation where no matter what happens, people will dispute the results. So why not cheat? And I think that's a calculation that's going to be made. And unless, let's say, unless Trump or Biden, I think they're going to be our two candidates, um, will win by some massive margin, people are going to dispute that. And even if they do, imagine if Trump wins massively by 10 points. Yeah. Um, I could see left-wing cities not taking that, or California seceding. And wars happen when people have no better options. <laughs> because when your life is depressing, you have no goals, you're not, not going to get married, you're not going to have a real job, you're not going to own property... And I mean, humans will bear suffering and war more easily than depression and ennui. That's the thing Julius Caesar said, where Julius Caesar said, I will find men who will die more. It's easier to find men who will die in war than will bear suffering patiently for years upon years. And war will, and I see this already, I go on Twitter. People are talking about violence and war on Twitter all the time. And, um... Twitter's, Twitter is simultaneously indicative and not indicative of the population because people are crazy there. But because so much of our lives are online, online becomes real life. Um, and, But you, uh, I really liked your question with the emotions that drive the right and the left because for the left, it's there too because America is a fundamentally Christian society, whether or not both sides realize it, our moral code is based upon Christianity. And even for the left, the left is built upon Christianity because things like equality, progress, caring for the meek are, they they don't, they come from Christianity. And so the underlying shared emotion is guilt. 
and the right and the left pull on guilt in different ways. For the left, they pull on anxiety and envy, um, which are very modern emotions. And for the right, they have pride and disgust. And um, with with the left, and, and envy is an emotion you see in communist societies. Anxiety is one you see in wealthy societies in decline. Pride is something you see in tribal warrior societies. Disgust is something you see in very conservative... Um, it's, it's, it's something you see in conservative societies around the world. And, I mean, what I would say is that it's much more difficult to mobilize people with anxiety or envy than with pride or disgust. And the left doesn't have any pillars for military yeah. values. They think hierarchy is bad. They think uh, discipline is bad. They think masculinity is bad. They think opening owning weapons is bad. Um, they, <laughs> and um, I, I don't, the only way I could see a left winning a civil war is by um, goading the right into a revolution, which they then use the military to crush. In every other circumstance, I see the right winning because the right has most enlisted men in the military are right-leaning. I believe most officers are as well. The police are right-leaning. Um, the most gun owners are right-leaning. Most aggressive young men who are the demographic you want to pull on for the military are right-leaning. Um then um, the right controls a geographically coherent area being the countryside and the center where the left has got both coasts. Yeah. And oftentimes not even the countrysides between the major coastal cities. Um, and so except for that one circumstance, if we have a civil war, I think the right would crush the left very quickly. So let me, yeah, let, let's, let's unpack that a little bit. Um, because one of the things that I I've kind of found fascinating looking at this, and in fact, <laughs> I was talking about this with uh, Sean Ryan, and I said, "Yeah, you you look at the, what the left is doing. I, I do think a lot of this is is intentional. If you want to go into the philosophical underpinnings of of what's going on, and I and I typically make a distinction between left and liberal, um, and, and not to say that you know modern liberalism isn't isn't on the left, but when I look at like a Brett Weinstein." I see somebody who him and I would probably debate vigorously over what the marginal, you know, tax rate should be, you know, or, or whether or not we should have, you know, more government programs, but we wouldn't argue about the concept of property rights, or we wouldn't argue about the concept of freedom of speech or freedom of inquiry or, or even something more basic, like the laws of logic. Like I I would not be arguing with Brett Weinstein on whether or not the law of non-contradiction was a part of the racist patriarchy. Right. Um, but then when I, when I get into like leftism to your, to your point, you know, the, the old leftists, right. The communists were still that that was still a worldview that very much pushed this idea of masculinity and fighting and dying for something that you believed in yeah. and the whole deal. And that is not at all what, what seems to motivate modern leftists. I mean, they will get on Twitter and Antifa might show up when they have overwhelming numbers and intimidate, you know, one person standing out there with, you know, whatever sign, but these guys are not storming the beaches of Normandy. Um, and then by contrast, I, I see the people on the right, and like you said, it, it's kind of that lineup of all the people that are, are usually associated with the sort of people that fight wars and engage in conflict and do so effectively. And the, the big question we've been trying to answer over here on some of this is, who do they get to fight, <laughs> right? Because it, it isn't the person that is losing their crap over being misgendered at Starbucks, right? That's 
that's not that's not your 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 yeah. paladin, right? So, um, and 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 to your point, I that was one of the things that really impressed me was this idea of okay, then how do you how do you essentially goad or convince a bunch of people that philosophically on some level you hate and despise to fight the war for you. Now, here's, here's another question that I have based off of everything that's going on in the world right now and, and kind of the position that the left is taking toward like you know, Palestine and Israel. Um, and and on, on one level, you can look at the historical kind of uh, uh, Frankfurt School of breaking down the world into oppressors and oppressed and realizing that th- this isn't about an intellectually consistent worldview. This is about the accumulation of power. And if you yeah. if you fit in the oppressed side, then you're an ally. Um, you for now, you might not be later on, but you're an ally for now. What what do you think? Some of the uh, other than the right kicking it off, do you see any strategy that that hardcore leftist, um, you know, ideology? Do you see any other mechanism where they actually either d- develop some sort of fighting capability or or, or fighting spirit or co opt co opted in some manner in order to fight their battle now? And, and then again, maybe it turns on them later, but do you see any mechanism for that? The only people inside the left who would make good warriors are ethnic minorities. Um, but I don't really see what, what incentive normal ethnic minorities would have to fight that war. Um, where I'm from Philadelphia, and what occurred was that with the Defund the Police, it was funded, it was funded by the people I call the technocracy, the college educated, they want to manage the society and do all of this social reforms. They can have more stuff to manage. And what we're now seeing in Philadelphia is a black woman running, running on a pro police agenda because if you're a random black guy or you run an, an Indian guy who runs a deli in Philly, you do not want to fund the police because the people in downtown and the, the richest neighborhoods, they're still going to get hurt. But the people who get hurt the most by defund the police is the Indian Delhi owner in South Philly, which is a not great area. Yeah. And I, 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 it, one of the things I find ironic is that if you were a communist in 1930, there's a solid chance you would be on the MAGA right today. <laughs> um, because it's, it's it, like I, one of my friends, um, he literally had a meme where he wrote down statements from people of the 1935 Communist Party and then said these are things that you could see at a MAGA rally because it's stuff against big corporations, yeah. international – like large international interests, um, the big cities running society, etc. And um, I mean the thing is people always – people always overestimate the strength of their side and I try to be – I try to be cognizant of that. Um, but I mean, it's difficult for me to see an alliance of um, like black gang members with leftist technocrats because they just, I, I can't see them cooperating. Imagine what structuring a military organization between them in the same camp would look like. Yeah. They have completely different values. They have different goals in life. They have different, one of them is incredibly anxious. The other is, whatever the opposite of anxiety is. And <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's, I think the leftist coalition is a lot weaker than people realize. And the thing that I compare it to is decadence over history, where decadence is this natural state societies evolve into, where 
people lose any sense of values, they lose any sense of realness, and it's caused by a wealthy, safe society, so people don't have to be real. And when I look at the left, it appears to me like the court of some ancient emperor or the court of some ancient nobility that's been in power for a very long time. They have no clue that the barbarians are stronger than them. They have no clue that the peasants are starving. And I look at the World Economic Forum types, and the thing that shocks me is I'm a 22-year-old. I don't have a marketing degree. I look at the things the World Economic Forum says, and I think, you guys are idiots to say this stuff. Even if you believe it, this is a horrible front to put out for the population. I don't have a marketing degree. They could give me 20 bucks and I could tell them this. They have people, hundreds of people with marketing degrees, and they still do that. And that signifies a degree of disconnect from reality that basically dooms a movement. And the what I think on our current government is back in ancient China, you would have regimes where there is a child emperor surrounded by eunuchs and squabbling harem women. Yeah. That is our current government. <laughs> <laughs> it's just... <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it. it yeah, we, we talk sometimes about the, the bubble. I, w- I was joking once when I was talking with somebody who was like, we need to build the wall. I'm like, can we build it around D.C.? Like, I feel like I feel like that might do us more, more good. Um, so. All right. So let me I, I, I know you got to go soon. So I'm going to I'm going to leave one more question. And, it, and it's kind of it's kind of in line. Let's say uh, let, let's say, you know, the the. The leftist coalition, because I, I completely agree with your analysis on on where they're at, and and it, it almost feels like there's this this paper tiger. And again, what I what I told Sean, Sean Ryan about this is that it, it it's that it's kind of that you know funny quote that you hear every once in a while that that power is something of a trick. It exists where people think it exists, and I think that's partially true. It can exist where it exists, but ultimately until the exists, guns come out, yeah, it exists where it really is, and. And usually some people, again, I think there's a certain degree of hubris where, where those people that have gotten used uh, or they, they've gotten used to being in this position of power and influence by virtue of a society that they, they didn't necessarily help create. They certainly don't want to help defend and in, in many respects want to tear down, but have no real appreciation for what it takes to build it and what it takes to actually control, run, or manage it. And, and this, is, this is why you see um, – this within in communist societies where, you know, uh, you know Mao or a Stalin w- will be all too happy to take a, a very angry um, element of society and then turn it on against another society, and then as soon as they've taken it out, they w- Christian and I joke that the <laughs> after revolution the, the the second people killed after a revolution are the revolutionaries. <laughs> Um, because the the same people that are oh, necessary yeah, for the disruption are not useful for the rebuilding and the managing and the maintenance, and so let let's just say for a definitely. second, somebody in the World Economic Forum or or somebody in this uh, you know coalition of of leftist ideologically driven um, you know uh, uh, the alliance they all get together and they're sitting around the table and then one day they they kind of look around and they're like holy crap the only people that we have to do our fighting is Antifa and they suck at it the moment we're going to have to go up against somebody that actually knows how to fight we're going to have to correct this yeah so the the left is they hire mercenaries yeah the the left has been able to demonstrate before that they will jettison certain parts of their coalition like for instance the the working class have been totally jettisoned from from the, the left that used yeah. to be the, the people that they rallied behind. They've been totally jettisoned at this point. Not only are they, are they not useful, but I think they see them as a, as a positive impediment. And so somebody's looking around the table and they're like, all right, guys, we, we get it. That's right. We're going to, we're going to totally tear down the, um, 
tear down the uh, the patriarchy and we're going to reestablish it with our with our own you know whatever society based on on equity uh but turns out we don't got any trigger pullers uh what do we do about that so if if somebody did have the, the again they were able to step out of the bubble for a moment and realize that they don't actually have the ability to impose yeah. any of this without assistance from people that they fundamentally despise and institutions that they fundamentally despise how would they go about like what what do you think is let's say a, a probable way that they might say all right we got a course correct here a little bit in order to make sure that we got people yeah. that actually carry this out what what do you think they do i mean if they were to do that they would uh get they'd arm illegals or hire mercenaries from different countries um if they if the left was in a desperate position and they needed a military force they would um They'd get illegal immigrants from Mexico, give them weapons, say that if you've served for four years, we'll give you citizenship. And, like, if I was a Mexican immigrant, I'd take that bet because it's not my country. I don't really care. And I want to get citizenship. Um, or they'd get pe- mercenaries from other countries. Um, and that is a common tactic that countries with disconnected elites do so that they don't have to rely upon their own population. It was really big in the Middle East back in the day where um, the royal courts would hire barbarians from Central Asia or the Caucasus or the Balkans, arm them, because if they armed their own population, their own population would have leverage over the government, which they didn't want. Or the Romans would hire German barbarians for the same reason. That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking now that... The thing is, I don't... No, I was just saying when you when you look at when you look at the Ottoman when you look at the Ottoman court it was Janissaries when you look at the Egyptian courts at various times it was the Mamluks and and um and it, it was interesting how these these I, I wouldn't I, I of course I want to call the Janissaries mercenaries but it was this this element of they they essentially went throughout the realm and and specifically for the Janissaries were usually taking uh, kids from the the Balkans and, and those areas and then you know, raising them up to be both warriors and then later administrators. And then later there was a very fine line between who was actually running the the country between the Sultan and and the Janissaries. But yeah, no, it's, that's a good point. And, um, it's interesting because it's, it's also something Machiavelli talks about and also warns about on an over-reliance of mercenaries. But again, if, if you don't have, if you can't trust arming your own population or your own side in order to fight a war, either because they lack the capability, uh, and we, we saw this within Rome at one point as well, where the vast majority of the legions were not staffed by, a, and bared no resemblance to the early republic where serving as a part of the military was considered you know, an, an element of civic responsibility and and a moment of pride and, and actually one of the primary ways of, of upward mobility um, for, for people, then you're going to have to rely on, you know, a mercenary element to be able to do that. And that that's, yeah, yeah. I guess w- once again, you've, you've, you've tapped into what's the, what's the, it's not like they, it's not like governments haven't been in this position before. And, uh, and what do they rely on? They relied on mercenaries from outside the, the population to be able to do it. And sometimes at their, at their eventual detriment as a result. Well, listen, I, I want to I don't you think so. they'll actually be able to make that. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I don't, think I, I don't think they're capable of making that jump, though, because I run into almost no people who realize that the fundamental basis of power is military force. Yeah. And that's strange to me because that's been obvious to me for my entire life. <laughs> but I see it among, like, if you talk to a person on the left, um, there's no concept that they might have to militarily back up what they're saying. That just never processed for them. And it's even the case for people on 
I run into a lot of people on the right where they're constantly trying to network among pre-established coastal elites. And the thing that I tell them is the elite today doesn't look for people who are capable. Do not look for people who are elite because the people who are capable can become the elite if times change. The people who are elite but are un- incapable will not remain elite. No, that's that's outstanding. Yeah, it's it's amazing the amount of people that we have that again are elites because we're told they're elites or they're elites because uh one one you know faction if you will. And I and I don't I don't particularly like to talk about fellow Americans as as factions, but there are very very definitive ideological differences between various groups. And um, I, I use this once to explain my problem with the experts. Well, if you want the experts to regurgitate whatever your philosophy is, all you have to do at this stage is control academia because they're the ones that hand out the credentials for experts. Uh, but like you said, that what comes when it really comes down to it, it's the people that are capable. And that could be intellectually capable, that could be physically capable, professionally capable, whatever, whatever it is. But it's capability ultimately wins out in the end and, and ends up exposing kind of the, the ivory tower that the elites are in um, if they don't have capability themselves. Um, well, listen, I, I want to thank you for the time you've given us. Thank you for the, the work that you do. Um, I, and I want to encourage our audience. There, there are so many uh, videos out there on what if alt hist and, and to give you an idea, I'm going to give the spelling. That's, that's what if alt alt hist. That's the YouTube channel. The, the podcast is common ground. Tell us a little bit about uh, common ground and the purpose of that. I've been doing common ground for about six months. I brought Nick on, uh, about a month ago and we just bring on interesting guests, talk about, uh, Various topics. We've brought on uh, the Libertarian presidential candidate, Orson Scott Card, um, the CEO of one of the largest geopolitics consulting firms. So um, if you like that kind of content, stay tuned. No, that sounds great. And, and again, I, I can't emphasize this enough. This is his channel is so good at the intersection of both information and entertainment. And, and what I find so valuable about that is. We, we always tell our audience it's important to be intellectually formidable along with everything else. We, we kind of break it down to the categories of spiritual, emotional, uh, physical, uh, professional, and, and intellectual. And this is just, again, I, I watch these effortless, <laughs> effortlessly um, because they are so interesting Thank to watch. And, and, if you, and if you really are interested in kind of looking at predictive analysis, I can tell you from being in the military, predictive analysis is something that we always put a lot of time and effort into because we were trying to get ahead of the issues. And if you're looking for someone that does it, I, I think very well. Um, using a, a variety of sources, a variety of, of history. But here's the most important important part about this, but also with, with a healthy degree of humility. Um, I, I would really encourage you, take take a look at, at What If Alt His, take a look at, at Rudyard's work. Rudyard, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I hope it will be uh, future opportunities to be able to talk and maybe even collaborate in the future. Thank you so much. This was a real pleasure. All right. Take care. Everyone, thank you very much for watching, making the argument. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We also want to thank uh, Good Ranchers for being the sponsor of uh, what, is, or excuse me, what I think Good Ranchers for being the sponsor of making the argument. Also, continue, uh, consider going into our uh, community chat over there on Circle. We'll leave some descriptions for you in the page there. Once again, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next episode.